It's gonna be good. people. It's me, Jenny D from Spill With Me, Jenny D podcast. I am just so delighted and honored to have this guest on my show today. We go way back. Jimmy Kuzak is a retired police officer and he has been through some things that we really, he would like to share with the listeners and let you know what's going on with him and how he came about this and what he's doing now and how he's inspiring others and motivating others and he's featured in like heroes by by the badge is that what it's called Heroes behind the behind the badge Mm -hmm. yes and the documentary so and further ado jimmy kuzak is here thank you for having me (laughs) i it's such a pleasure i really appreciate you coming out and taking the time to talk to little jenny d oh come on now (laughs) so jimmy tell us about how we know each other and where you worked and everything like that. Wow, I think it goes all the way back probably to like maybe around 2000, I think. Oh my god. I think gosh. we're going all the way back then. Wait a minute, I had Lexi at 2000. I moved here in 2000. Yeah. In April. So you were a cop here in Peter's Township. Peter's Township. Okay. Yeah. I'd been here in Peter's Township from 1997 through 2010. Oh, really? So yeah. 2010. Okay, mm-hmm. I wasn't sure about that. Yeah. Yeah, so I... Did you ever have to come to my house? <laughs> For anything wrong? No. What? For lunch? Yes. <laughs> I did do that a few times. Oh, I know. And you know, when you see an officer in the car, a lot of people get like... <laughs> I'm going to get pulled over. He's going to pull me over. What am I going to do? But what is really, if you think about it, they're sacrificing their life and they're protecting you. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why they are there. Yes. To have this law enforcement Mm -hmm. and to make sure that everybody's being a good citizen. Is that what you would say? Yeah. The the biggest thing that I've come across over the 20 years that I was a law enforcement officer is no one likes to be told what to do. Right. Nobody. Right. It's it's just a thing. You know, everybody likes to have that ability to make their own decision, do what they want, even when we're kids. You know, right. mom and dad tells you what to do. It doesn't always go over well. But exactly. it's the same thing as with law enforcement officers. We're out here not to make it difficult for you. We're just kind of the guidance. Right. Some people don't really like to take that guidance. Some take it worse than others. Right. Like it's authority. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. hey, you're not, like you said, you're yes. not the boss. I mean, I could do whatever I want. I didn't do anything against the law. Yeah. It's just, you know, you've been through some stuff mm-hmm. here in uh, being a police officer, right? It comes down to, I think, a lot of how you interact with the people. Yeah. Depends on what kind of day you had. That's you know, right. that you might have that. You know, stern face for the day, and you don't have that ability to kind of draw your emotions back because a lot of the times you do have to keep your emotions in check first to then try and get somebody else's emotions in check. I know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I you know, I think about like when you go to a scene and 
oh, I can't even talk about it. But, you know, you see someone there and it's just horrific. Um, and you've been probably seeing a lot of things. We unfortunately get to see the worst of people most times. Yes. Whether it's them doing something wrong or the tragic loss of life or, you know, a catastrophic injury, we're usually the first there. We usually beat the ambulance there. Yes. So there's a there's a large... Oh, he's on call. Look at him. Yeah, I wish that was the case. That's my pill notification. <laughs> he's busy. He's busy. <laughs> Once you get a little older, the memory doesn't kick in as much as it hey, used to. We're the same age, cut him out. Oh, well, you know. You look better at our age than 29. I do. 29. We're both 29. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to wear these anymore. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, I, it, it really comes down to uh, that you've got to love the career. Yeah, you have I mean, to. You, the reason why you went to the police academy. I mean, was it? Did it run through your family? Like, were there other no, police officers? No, we didn't have any in the family. I had made every plan coming out of high school to be a pilot. No way. Everything I wanted. I we wanted to fly planes. Now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, <laughs> now I would have been the experienced long-term pilot. Right. But uh, I looked at uh, Community College of Beaver County because they had flight programs because they actually owned the tower at Beaver County um, Airport. Oh, really? So they had an air travel controller program. They had a pre-flight program, everything. All right. But then I got up there, and I saw that they had a program for lethal weapons. And I'm like, hmm, I've always been into guns. Yes. And then that kind of went further into police work. Right. And then once it went into police work, I'm like, yeah, I think I want to try this. No way. How old were you when you started? 19. Well, I was wow. in the academy at 19. They even told me you're too soon. I'm like, ah, I'm going to do it. Right. So did the academy, got out of the academy. I became a mall guard first. Okay. I, when Century 3 Mall was Are in its you prime. You were like Paul Bart. Paul Blart. No, it wasn't Paul Blart. <laughs> at the time. He wasn't allowed to have a gun. <laughs> no, we didn't have guns. We had to deal oh. with the public in their worst way as, uh, as just somebody there with handcuffs. And this was Century 3. Century I used to three go mall. there all the time. Well, you know what it was like. Friday oh, nights was the place to be. Yes. So well, here we are, a bunch of guys that, you know, we're, we would be dealing with fights of 20 people and, you know, the bus stops. And right. it was fun. I think it learned, I think I learned how to talk to people a little bit better there because you're not, you know, you don't have a gun. You have right. to deal with people when hopefully they don't have that option of a gun. And I made it through that career without getting hurt. And then right. within a year of being there, I started police work in 93. No way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And you were, um, before you were in Peters, were you somewhere else? Oh, yeah. I oh, worked okay. uh, when I started in 93. 93. Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. We had a large um, area of police departments are part-time. They had a lot of part-timers. And it was very difficult to get a full-time job because oh. there weren't always that many positions in full-time. So I worked at West Newton Borough first. Well, Hanover Township for Star Lake Amphitheater. I worked the, the concerts. Oh, hey, that's yeah. not bad. <laughs> and then I worked Cecil Township in Washington County. I left West Newton that summer to then go work at Homestead Borough, that where we still had a steel mill at the time. Oh, wow. Uh, there was no water. That was front. a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> it was definitely a long time ago. And then once I did those two, uh, early 94, I got hired at Ross Draver Township. Mm-hmm. And then I was offered full time in August of 94 at Cecil Township. Okay. So I spent my next three years at Cecil, and then I took the opportunity to take the test to Peters, and I was hired in 97, June of 97. June of 97. Mm-hmm. I spent 13 years of my career there. So after um, you <clears throat> were an officer here in Peters, you mm-hmm. ended up going over to Claritin? Yeah, I had worked here, and then on top of that, I'd worked with the Washington County District Attorney's narcotics officers, uh, which 
took us outside of Peters, but it also gave us the ability to work within Peters at a different range. You know, when you're out here in uniform all the time, getting involved in drug work isn't as easy. Right. You know, obviously you're in a uniform, so you have to do some other things. And then I left here in... It was June of 2010. And I left. It was time for me to move on. So when I moved on, I went and worked with a friend's company, working Monday through Friday. I found out very quickly that I'm not a Monday through Friday guy. After Mm -hmm. working shift work for 18 years, you kind of like the whole work at midnight, afternoons. I was going to say shift work. Mm -hmm. What's the usual for a police officer to work? At the time, we were working eight-hour shifts. You would be working... um, Seven days on, two off, seven days on, two off, and then seven days on, four off. And your four days off would be after your midnight shift. And then after those four days, you would roll into your daylight shift. Yeah, because you, you have to get the sleep and catch up, with, mm-hmm. you know. And you never catch up on sleep. No. So then you're working midnights, but on top of midnights, you might have uh, a court case at the magistrates at 8 a.m. So we would get done here at, you know, sometimes, well, here we worked 4 to 12, 12 to 8. You'd go right from that into court, or you'd have one at 10 a.m. Oh, what are you going to do for two hours? Yeah, you have if you to. go to sleep, you're not getting up. You're not getting up, no. So, yeah, shift work was, uh, was mo- I did that for 14 years. We went to 12 hours here, and I enjoyed 12 hours. Yeah. You'd do three on, two off, and then you'd do five on, three off, and then you would do a month of that shift. Gee, so if you're making arrangements or a schedule, you know, with your wife, it's like, um, let never. me let, uh, they never I don't work. think I can make that wedding. Or And as you said before, with police, you're making a sacrifice. You are. You sacrifice a lot of time with your family. Mm-hmm. You sacrifice a lot of your time with any type of Files hobby or anything, or anything yeah. like that. Right. And a lot of the, a lot of people that you may have been friends with early on in my career never understood this working job and right. how you would spend time and where you would lose it. And you lose them as friends over time. Yeah. And then you end up being friends with just police officers. Obviously, they're not mm-hmm. your true friends when it comes down to Sure. Yeah. And I've learned that uh, people come into your life for a reason. Mm-hmm. I do, too. And they don't do always... Too. They're not always going to be there. You may have a period that it's a five-year period, and then something separates you. Oh, yeah. And then I believe a lot of people will say, oh, you know, you don't call me, you don't this. Well, it it works both ways. Sure. Phone you know, works the both guilt ways. of like, and I don't want to feel guilty anymore. Now that I'm getting older, I'm like, sure. my circle's like, small. Yeah. It's not like it used to be, you know. And, you know, having children, that takes you in a different direction. I didn't have Fur children. babies? You have fur babies? Yeah. So I had everything that takes the, the where you go with the dogs. All right. And they're, at least you can put them in a crate and not get in trouble. <laughs> you can do that with your kids. So, yeah. You never know. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's kind so of where my... You, yeah, where did you go after that? You went over... I had started to test for departments that I now wanted to have the option of working in. You know, okay. larger departments, uh, city of Pittsburgh. I, I kind of considered... I wanted to go to Allegheny County. I'd always known so many guys there, and I took a test there and wound up, I mean, we were probably 2,000 people for that, and I wound up 147th on the list. So it wasn't bad. Yeah. And I was kind of waiting to see where that came around, and then I said, you know what, i gotta, I got to get back into police work again. Yeah. I knew a bunch of the guys at Clareton. I knew it was part-time, and it wasn't going to make a lot of money, but let's get back into it. So I went down there, saw the chief, and next thing you know, I'm getting hired. That was March of 2011. March of 2011, okay. And within three weeks, I was shot in line of duty. Are you kidding me? Three weeks? Three weeks. I worked for three weeks until April 4th, 2011 on a Monday evening. Oh. Mm-hmm. 
Jimmy, I don't know if you want to take us back to that day. Sure. I, I mean, you know, as a police officer, you mm-hmm. probably, you already know that this could happen. Yes. You could be, you know, and you're always cautious or, you know, waiting mm-hmm. or worrying about, not worrying, but knowing your surroundings, like mm-hmm. where to go. How did this happen? It happened just like any other day. We were, there was three of us on shift, myself, Matt McDaniel, and John Steiner. John was the youngest at the time. He was uh, in his 20s. Matt and I had been on the job for some time. So we, I got on shift at uh, 8 p.m. to work at 8 p.m. to 4 a.m., and those guys had been out for, I think, a, four, a 3 to 11 or 4 to 12. And we dealt with a couple, I think it was a couple domestics, if not just other calls. Yeah. It's a rainy April cool evening in Pennsylvania, as it usually is. We got a call, I think it was about um, 10.45 at night or 10.47. We got there relatively quick. Uh, the call came in as a disturbance at first. We didn't know what that was. Then we found out that it was a duplex, that the people at 858 Miller Avenue were complaining that something isn't right at 860 Miller Avenue. I'm like, okay. And then it, as we got... Two doors down? Something? No, it's a duplex. So they're oh, both connected. Oh, they're connected. Yeah. Okay. So they could hear something going on that, mm-hmm. that wasn't normal, wasn't the same. But then as we got there, we were told it may be some type of home evasion. It's like, okay. So when you go to calls like that or a domestic, you don't go right up to the driveway with your lights on and, and make yourself known. Right. So we parked about a house or two down, came in blacked out, no lights on, no headlights or anything like that. And as I got there, Matt got there, John got there last... Matt came out with his rifle. I, John and I both had our handguns. Uh, John went to the front door. I went to the rear door, which was uh, on his deck probably wasn't any bigger than his table. And I had four steps just to get to the level of the door. I went up there, and as soon as I went up, Matt was positioned between the front door and the back door so he could kind of see Matt, uh, see John and I, just to give you cover. Right, and you're talking to each other through the... We're not even really talking. We just no. both said, hey or the three of us. We get there, John, you go to the front door, I'll go to the back, Matt, stay here. Yeah, we had radios if we needed to. Okay. So when I went to the back door, again, it's dark out, can't see anything, it's a light rain. As I went up to the steps, I could see that the back door was open a little bit. It was a white steel door. And as I went to go to the door, the door was shut immediately. So I tried to kick it to get in, and it didn't open. So then I started announcing myself, knocking on the door, Claritin police, and it wouldn't open the door. So when I came back down the steps to go see Matt and John, John says, I kind of had the same thing. A guy entered the door but said everything was all right, and then slammed the door shut. I said, all right, well, we need to get some type of communication going. I went to the back door again. This time I had my gun out. As I got up the steps and as I was walking to the door, as I got to the door, all we saw was what was once the white door is now open and a black void, and then I saw a muzzle flash. Just a large blast of orange light and smoke and okay this is getting real i knew i was getting shot at and i'm wondering why right now i'm not shooting back what is the problem yeah now the time frame with this as it's going to me is very slow right things are slowing down because your mind's processing something that is so traumatic and your body has the function to deal with it well at this point in time it's getting auditory exclusion. I heard the first shot, but I didn't hear anything after that. I was getting tunnel vision, even though it was dark. I could see that I'm not really getting to see what's going on. I know all this, and I know this is happening because I've done training in the past that, you know, this is what's going to happen when you get in these high-stress situations. But I'm still thinking, why aren't I shooting? Right. In that short period of time where I was shot five times, possibly a sixth shot that didn't hit me, um, going back later, the third 
the fourth bullet is what caused the damage that paralyzed me. So I was standing and went from standing to immediately falling to the bottom of the deck, uh, hitting my head on the banister behind me and sat there. I mean, literally went from standing to someone dragged your feet out from underneath you. What happened next was, again, I'm in this kind of a slow motion is I start to see legs coming to my left and going to walk over me. And I thought it was them going to come out and just finish me. So I figured it's over. But what was happening in real time was I'd just been shot five times. The person or persons who were in the house ran over me and out the deck and through the backyard. Matt and John thought I was the one doing the shooting. So then when they saw the person run, they went to go after him. They hadn't known I was down because they couldn't really. John, I did. I found it later, was literally at the base of the four steps and was probably within the line of fire of getting hit as well. Matt had taken cover because he was still off to the right of us. But as they chased them out through the, I say them, but it could have been just one, out to the backyard to a, an alleyway, I was laying there trying to breathe. What I didn't know was that the fourth bullet had pierced through my vest, entered my left chest area below my my left nipple, went in, struck a rib, went down through my left lung, damaging it, and then went across my T11 vertebrae, breaking off a foraminal process and transecting the spinal column, not completely severing it, but having some type of intrusion to it. Then immediately took my legs and I landed on the floor. So... In dealing with trying to breathe, I'm realizing I have to let them know that I'm hit. Well, I usually had my microphone for my radio on my chest. Yeah. Well, bullets two and three took care of that. Oh it was removed God. and went laying out in the yard they found later on. So my radio wasn't functioning. So Jesus. now I'm trying to figure out what am I going to do. I'm reaching around for my gun. I can't find my gun. Uh, I'm assessing myself knowing that, okay, one, you can't move your legs. You know something's severely wrong with that. I can feel the sheer amount of blood literally just leaking out of the side of my chest. And I can feel the warmth of it running down the side of my body. So I'm like, this isn't good. Yeah. And when I say not breathe, the best way I can describe it is do about 25 jumping jacks, 10 push-ups, and then have your husband sit on your chest. Yeah. And say, okay, I'm going to breathe normal. You're not. You just can't get that in. Every time you let a breath out, your chest compresses and you can't rebuild that. Well, what I didn't know was my left lung was collapsed and my right lung was collapsing. So, From the one bullet. The other bullets, did they hit your vest? Um, yes. So bullet one went through my arm, at my left, my, excuse me, my right forearm, traveled down the length of my arm to my elbow and lodged in my elbow. Jesus. So that's what initially took my gun. First bullet took my gun away from me. My hand just opened and my gun was gone. Two and three, we know, went across the front of my vest to, to see the markings because I was bladed as I approached the door. Four literally traveled into my chest through the vest, completely through the vest. Five, as I was going down, went through my armpit and out the back. Jesus. We don't know if it was six shots or five shots because we know that it was a revolver being fired because there were no shell casings left behind through the investigation. So we know they didn't saw pick them up. Right. Revolvers retain the, the ammunition. It could be a five-shot revolver or a six-shot revolver. So in laying there and sitting there realizing what's going on, um, I'm trying to describe it as it was an eerie calm. Yeah. I was calm. I didn't feel any pain. I knew what was going on, and I knew it was bad. And I knew that if I was just to sit there and close my eyes, okay, it's done. 
you're not going to see anybody from here on out. You're just going to go and you're going to, you're going to die. You were processing all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like I said, to everything happening, it's seconds, not minutes, seconds. To me, it was like us sitting here talking. It was that kind of time frame. I wasn't hurried about it. I wasn't panicked about it. But did you call backup? Like, did anybody call backup? No, because all of us were there. So when we were all there, you know, for our department, three guys were there. Um, I don't know what the two guys said on the radio. They could have been saying, hey, everything's going on, or we're getting shot at. I don't know. I just know that I was able to just finally take that deep enough breath where I started yelling, guys, I'm hit. I'm hit. So I like to kind of go over the whole incident in different uh, I want to say kind of things that happened with it. So with right. this, I see that Matt, who has the rifle, he, he actually hears me. And they're probably almost 20 yards away from me at this point in time. So Matt then goes to look for where the sound was, didn't know it was me, goes back to the looks to the deck and brings his rifle up and has a flashlight on it and illuminates me. He didn't know if it was a bad guy. Our uniforms were oh all black, yeah, which is silver right. patches. It's dark out and rainy. And-, and Matt finally realized, it's me. It's Jimmy. So he gets John to come back. They come back up to me. Matt pulls me off the deck. Literally, fireman carries me over his back. Out to the front of the house is in a house down to where police cars were. And then starts to work on me. Fortunately, Matt was also an EMT. Thank God. Matt starts tearing my uniform shirt off, tears my bulletproof vest off, and then just grabs my left chest, and he says, this is going to hurt. That's the first time I felt pain. Oh. He reached up to stop the bleeding on my chest, starts dealing with that. I heard sirens starting to come, so they had already put out that it was an officer hit. So that means in Allegheny County, when this happens, you get what's called an all call. Every available car respond. I from other districts from other, in town. From other okay. departments, every other Anybody other police could get there. Right, even police that are off duty, huh? Anybody. So I think they end up coming close to 40 different departments, you know, basically shut Clareton down. Um, that wasn't my goal at that point in time. My goal was to stay alive. Right. Um, they told me that they had intended to fly me, either a stat medevac or life flight, through uh, using the helipad at the mill. Clareton Mill has a helipad, so they're going to say, hey, we're going to go down there, except for the rain started getting so bad they weren't able to fly. So they're going to transport me by ground to uh, one of the trauma units, get me in the ambulance, and start taking off. Well, it's now pouring down rain. Uh, at some point in time, I don't know where because I was busy in the back of the ambulance, the car pulled out in front of the ambulance and almost caused us to crash. So when they avoided that, it sent me partially off of the cot in the ambulance. My oh leg went my over, gosh. my arm went over. It had pulled out uh, one of my IVs that they had started. Oh. So then once they get me positioned back. Were you feeling all this? Like, Oh, I was awake. I was going to say they didn't have. I was awake, um, but it was kind of like cloudy. I don't know if that was from, from me getting my head wrung, hitting the back of that banister or what. So in them talking to me, I'm like, look, I can't breathe. And when I say I can't breathe, I'm going to die breathe that I can't breathe. So they initially started by putting in a needle in my chest to try and reinflate the lung. Oh, my gosh. Because that then takes the air pressure around the lung away. That didn't work. So then they realized that the right lung was starting to collapse. They did it over the right side, kind of got that to 
to come back a little bit. And then uh, I remember them telling, not telling me, but I was told this later, that to get an IV to stay in, they did what's called an IO, I guess, where they drilled directly into the bone. Oh, my God. You're feeling all this? No, because that was in the legs. So, fortunately, I couldn't feel my legs because of the paralysis. So, they put the two needles in there. Then you have a, a, a direct stream of whatever medication they're giving to you into the bone. So then I remember getting to the the trauma unit. I can remember them pulling me out in the ambulance and seeing all the lights above as you're going in. And the trauma doctor asked me what hurt, and I think I told him that my right side of my butt hurt real bad. Yeah. It was just, until this day, it's still a sensitive part. And then I just remember everything going white. Did it shoot, like, down your spine or? Um, the pain or... The bullet. Because, yeah, for you to say that your butt hurts, now you're saying. When you have a spine, your spinal column is literally thousands upon thousands of individual lines of nerves. Mm-hmm. Somehow that bullet went, transected that. We don't know. Did it do five? Did it do 10? Did it do 500? And since we never did any surgery for my back, you just don't know. Right. So when you start to go into the, the world of paralysis, you start finding out what was damaged. That's a, right. We'll get into that later. Yeah. But uh, when I got into the trauma unit, and like I said, it, everything ended in, it, it went white. Not black. Everything went white in my eyes. I didn't know if we're over. I'm over. I'm dead. I'm dying. Could where you am hear I going? people talking? Oh, yeah. Until That's such a weird I, went, feeling. I went just blank. I didn't know <sighs> if it was the end. Until they told me I first woke up the next morning at about, I think they said six or seven. So you were out like all night? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did the surgery. It wasn't like a coma, it was more no, like a. No, it was uh, either I passed trauma. out. Yeah, trauma. I don't know if they put me out. I don't know any of that. I just know that they did a radical thoracotomy in my chest. And the trauma surgeon said, when we opened you up, he says, my biggest goal was to stop the bleeding. He says, I was literally scooping out handfuls oh, of your blood God. and lung out of your left chest area. I'm like, well, I appreciate that. He said, it narrowly missed your aorta and your heart. I don't know how. And then that it was now lodged in my lower right back next to the spinal cord, not the cord, but outside of the vertebrae. But that wasn't a surgery necessary to save my life, just the the one with the chest. So they did that. And then uh, woke up that morning was intubated, didn't do well with that. They put me back out, and then later on in the afternoon, they extubated me, and I woke up, or they let me wake up. And then it was uh, what they had told my parents and Chris at the time. They said, look, um, he's never going to walk, and he'll be paralyzed for the rest of his life, and we won't know until we get about past 48 hours if he's going to live. Oh, my gosh. That is not something they want to hear. No, not at all. I can't imagine. And you were sitting there when they were talking about this. Um, No. When they first told them that, that was probably when I was in recovery. And they came into the family room where everybody had started to gather, you know, between police officers, my family, my cousin, same age as me, is a police officer as well, who's also my best friend. He was there and trying to comfort, you know, my dad, who literally just lost it. You know, can't comprehend. I don't even know how anybody comprehended it. No. Um, Because, you know, they got the, Chris and my mom and dad got the knock at the door. You know, probably around 11.30, quarter to 12. And it was the police officer. It's Rush River Police saying, uh, you need to come with us. Jim's been shot, and he's on the way to the hospital. Oh, my God. Yeah. And the thing is, Chris, being in the search and rescue realm of knowing police officers because she trained dogs 
with police canines. So it's a huge group. They started texting her. Is Jimmy all right? What's going on? She didn't even know. Mm-mm. Didn't know yet. And then she's like, what is going on? And then the knock at the door. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And the oddest thing was we always would text back and forth. You know, even if I had a call, she knew if I'd answer right away that I'd get back to her. Right. She texted me at 1051, and I never answered her back. So we know I got there, I think it was either, I got there fast at the incident at 1047. Yeah, because you said it was 1047. 1047 by 1051, I was being shot. Oh, my gosh, mm-hmm. Jimmy. Yeah. You know, so it was you, a lot. You are such a hero. You really are. <clears throat> That's a, I, I know, I know what yeah. you're going to say. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to say that because what you've been through mm-hmm. is kind of like, I mean, the worst case scenario could have happened to you. Oh, absolutely. Gone. Yeah, that's why I do. I do my best not to complain because yeah. the other option was a whole lot different. So when they told your parents and Chris mm-hmm. that they're forty-eight hours, mm-hmm. what were they waiting to see? Just if I would stop bleeding inside, you know, there's, I lost a lot of blood. I think they said they gave me at least six units of uh, blood transfusions, uh, which I just so appreciated all the blood drives they were doing. I think there were two in Peters, oh, yeah. uh, a couple in West Mifflin, you know, uh, you know, I, I guess a lot of people knew who I was oh, yeah. and a lot of people appreciated how I was a police officer right. because the, the amount of people that came out for things was just, uh, it was just amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, so I was, uh, and the other thing about the hospital was nobody knew who shot me at this point in time. They were never able to catch them that evening. So when I'm at the hospital, once I've now been in recovery right. after the surgery, well, they're not going to just leave me anywhere. So they had me under a fictitious name. I was on an intensive care in the burn unit of Mercy, which is a lockdown unit. So nobody could just come in. Right. They had guards of numerous different police officers I at the door. I didn't even think about that. I didn't either. I'm like... Because I thought they caught him. No. no, no, no nobody was caught right away. Hmm. So, yeah. So, in a nutshell, that was the incident. That's what yeah. brought me to where I am today, uh, you know, in the wheelchair. Um, I don't slight it. I don't like to think, oh, it, it was just that. It was hell. Yeah. You know, uh, I spent a total of 47 days in the hospital, which now I get to go back to uh, Mercy and mentor and talk to people that are in the spinal cord injury floor. Uh, that was a short stay. Yeah. You know, I, it was like, okay, you're, I'm able-bodied from basically the waist up. I just don't have the use of my legs. Right. So they were able to, you know, do my physical therapy, teach me how I needed to um, get up, how to dress myself, you know, go through all this stuff, which is, it's, I don't even know how to put it, that you're relearning how to live. Right. You know, to see, okay, we're not going to see if you can walk here just because I didn't have braces yet. I didn't have braces for my legs. So it was a lot of, let's do some core work. Well, core work was difficult because the damage to my spinal column, they had me in a turtle shell. I had a hard plastic shell that went from my waist to my chest right here, front and back, Velcroed around. So I couldn't do anything other than turn my head and lean at the waist for my entire stay in the hospital until we're ready to leave. I'm like, look, I don't know what to do after you take this off of me or how right. long is it going to be. So they did a, an x-ray the, the night before I was leaving and said, oh, yeah, you can take that off. I'm like, 
<laughs> so now I had to work on getting my core really strong because it was hard. Yeah. Learning how to transfer yourself from the wheelchair to the car. You know, first you learn you have a board to just slide on. You just scoot your butt over from right. place to place. But, um, yeah. So, uh the incident itself. I was going to say, I mean, I, is it hard for you to talk about this? Not so much anymore. Uh, Chris and I, immediately after uh, the incident and after I was out of the hospital, um, I did have some issues with, I wasn't diagnosed with PTSD, but it was there. Oh, absolutely. Uh, loud noises. Um something I just wasn't comfortable with. Like just normal anxiety was just beyond heightened. So we started going to uh, therapy with uh, a counselor through victims of violent crime. Right. It I was weird. I had that. Yeah. Well, any person who in the state of Pennsylvania who is a victim has access to the victims of violent crime. I really had no idea that myself. I just knew that we would hand up pamphlets to people that have been involved in, in incidences like that. So now that I have, I'm like, I'm, I'm a victim. Okay. I never had that label. You, yeah, because you were such a strong... I've just know, been a police officer right. my entire life. You're, you know, you're, that's what you are. But now I'm a victim? How am I a victim? And I'm right. like, you know what? You are because you were assaulted, you were attacked, someone tried to kill you. Exactly. So we, Chris and I went to counseling for a good year. And let me tell you something, that was probably the best thing we did. Yeah. Because For both it, of you. Yeah. Because, what you know, and here's the thing. Chris was only my my girlfriend at the time yeah. of a year. And they told her in the hospital, the, the nurses and the staff, they said, look, we're not telling you this to make your mind up about doing things. This is just the numbers. Yeah. And I believe it was 50% of girlfriends leave, 25% of fiancés stay, and uh, wives, you know, They'll do. They'll stay a lot of the time. Yeah. But she was a girlfriend, you know. And I even told her, I said, "Look, I, no one in my family nor me will have any ill will towards you if this is something you don't want or you don't think you can handle as a life moving oh on from God. here." Oh my God, that was so nice of you to even say that. She never wavered once Mm-mm. to this day. She loves you, you know, unconditionally, and you know, we all love you. Having. Um. Having somebody behind you like yeah. that is so very special. Yeah. And it's created a relationship with her and I that is, we have to find something all the time to let's do and make us happy and have fun. Right. There's always going to be things in life that's going to take you to the difficult places. There right. always will be. But when you don't have that, let's fill the other time in with let's laugh, let's have fun, let's play with the dogs, let's go places, yes. let's meet people. And so that's what we've done for the last 12 years. Right, and what you're doing now, I mean, mm-hmm. you are talking about it, and there's other men and women that are in the service that are risking their lives and they always think in the back of their mind, this could happen to me. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, just last week, and hopefully I get there this week, I was back at Mercy. And I was talking to a, an injured police officer, oh. shot in line of duty. Uh, I'm not going to say his name, but right. um, yeah, he's got a tough road. He's been a police officer for a long time. And uh, he's right now classified as a quad, quadriplegic. But I believe probably in time, maybe not very quickly, that he'll be a very functioning quadriplegic, right. a high-level functioning quadriplegic. So, Were you able to talk to him? I mean, it's going yes. to be... 
person to person, him and his wife, uh, you know, because they're in the same boat right. that I and Chris were in. You know, uh, that's remarkable that you yeah. can sit there and talk to somebody about what they're going through because you've been through it. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. Nobody can feel the way you feel at that. No, and unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, until you're in that tragedy. And unfortunately, yes. You know, as police officers, same with me, you know, I had gone to training through what we used to be called, I think still is street survival, did it four times. It's usually a three day class, Mm -hmm. and it teaches you that just because you get shot does not mean you die. It's not like the movies. Right. So that I think instilled to me that I didn't have to give up then either, knowing I was shot. And trust me, was it an option? Absolutely. Because when I was laying there, sitting, laying, whatever you want to call it, my mind started processing things. I've heard it before. People are like, oh, when you almost die, you hear about things or you talk about that. Is it true? It's very true. Now, you know, was it, some people say, oh, it's just your brain dropping dopamine so that you can feel the pain and everything, which I'm sure is true. But I was sitting there, I could see my parents, mom and dad, saw Chris, so my grandmother, who was I was closest to, has passed for some time. And then the last thing I saw was at the time our two dogs, Zarwin and Zena. We played with them incessantly. Uh, always out there, you see them, their tongue hanging and breathing real hard. Well, I saw them sitting on my chest, breathing hard, tongues out going, yeah, it's hard to breathe, so what? And They're that's, like, Daddy, you're not going anywhere. And that's where I said to myself, I said, I will not die on this porch. And that's when I was able to get that breath up and just start yelling. I'm hit, guys. Get me out of here, fighter. whatever. That's a fighter, because you have you have something to live for. You know, you have these wonderful mm-hmm. family members and your wonderful fiance and mm-hmm. your dogs and just everything in your life. You know, I'm not. This is not going to bring me down. Yeah, and that's the nice thing in having a support system. Yes. Not everybody has it's a lot that. Of courage to do that too, because a lot of people could just be like, "Well, it's mm-hmm. over." Like you said, at one point, you were like, "I." I don't know if this is going to... I'm not going to die is when I finally realized it. I said, you know what? Mm, I'm not dying here. And, you know, I was fortunate. Um, I had God on my side. Yeah. You know, somebody reached out here and said, uh, yeah, hey, you're real close to dying, but let's let's not take it there. Oh, yeah. Somebody was watching you. Yeah. And it's almost like you learn so many life lessons when you've been through a tragedy or something that's been so horrific that you can't comprehend. You think, oh, my gosh, I can't. How am I going to live my life like this? How am I going to be this person? And it's so I can only imagine because I have no idea how it feels. But, the you know, sometimes I feel sorry for myself. and I'm mm-hmm. like, Then I think about, like, what are you doing, Jen? There are people out there that have been through so many rough, rough mm-hmm. roads. And, you know, pick yourself up and remember, you know, just, you know, keep fighting. Don't feel sorry sure. for yourself. And it's it's not just me as a police officer. It's not just the fact that Any I'm paralyzed. Position, yeah. It's, I was given a second chance. And my second chance is a completely different life. Right. So I've lived one life. I lived a life from baby 39 years old. Mm-hmm. I've experienced so much in life. And I really appreciate that much about my, what I would say my first life, because I also had early on had been a mentor. Uh, and once I left the hospital within two months, we were very close to our, our veterinarian, her friend's son graduated high school and was at his pool party, slipped trying to go into the pool and became a quadriplegic. Jeez. 18 years old. 
very smart, intelligent kid, just with friends at his home pool, slipped and is now a complete quadriplegic. Jesus. And I had to go in there and sit there and tell him it's gonna not be okay, but it's gonna be it's gonna be good. Right. And fortunately, today he is still functioning. He has been through college. He's doing everything he good. can. Good. But. Like you said, you don't know. But you give them something to believe in, Jimmy. You know, it's, I hope you do because you know what that that's the hardest. Like no matter what age you are in your life, mm-hmm. and if you just feel like, you know, I'm alone. You feel like you're alone. You feel like nobody else has gone through something, mm-hmm. and that's why I do this podcast because I want people to know, you know, and like you said, any line of duty that you do sure. in this world, or anything that happens to you, and like falling mm-hmm. in an accident. But what I love about it, Jimmy, is that you you mentor people. You talk to people. Mm-hmm. You believe that they will be, they'll get through this because you got through this and you know how to do it. Yeah. Chris and I were fortunate enough. Um, it's called the Police Officer Support Team. And I didn't even realize how involved they were um, until they were there at my family's side at the hospital and said, this is who we are. We are peer counselors for police officers for situations such as these and others. Yeah. We're not going to push anything on you, but we're here on the sidelines. Yeah. If you need us to talk, we're here. Well, and you didn't even know that existed. I had an idea. We used right. to have cars that floated around the station. If you need to talk, here's a number to call. Right. It was a warning number, and that's all I thought it was. I didn't know, didn't delve into it much because I didn't think I'd ever need that number. So when they came to my bedside and, you know, did this stuff for the family, when Chris and I were probably a year or so into this and going through my physical therapy, we said, we want to be involved with them. So Chris and I became um, certified peer counselors. Oh, did you? So it's peer to peer. What What that is about is, no, I'm not being a psychiatrist, psychologist, but what I am is, is somebody that can talk to another police officer knowing that, hey, I've been in your boat, I've maybe been in something like you are, mm-hmm. bounce it off of me. I don't right. ask you your name. You can give it to me. We're going to talk. And the great thing about it is, is no matter what that we're talking about, it can never be used against them. I will yeah. never be forced to testify. I can't be forced to testify. And I appear. I love that. Yeah. And Chris and I have spoken to too many people. Yeah. Good and bad that it is. Yes, it's great that we got to talk to them, but my Lord, why do we have to talk to so many people? What's wrong? What is wrong? Yeah. And it's, um, it's life. It's the world we live it's in. It's being a police officer like we discussed. It's divorces prevalent amongst police officers. Oh, yeah. I went through divorces as a police officer. It broke me. Yeah. And it breaks so many of us. And unfortunately, a lot of suicide in law enforcement is rampant. Yeah. Again, just like the unfortunately with the veterans, we put it out there. No one really likes to talk about it. Right. The and mental health state is just oh, that's, in that's, such discord right it now. It really is. And people don't think they need the help or mm-hmm. they're, you know, kind of thinking, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. But talking to someone else that doesn't really know you, mm-hmm. just having that like... There's no judgment. There's no judgment. This person doesn't know you. And, and yell and scream and, and be mad and, yes. you know, and just be vocal. But you know what? Like, this person's here to say, go, just yeah. do it. Because I'm here to listen. And that's what we love about that's it. That's all you need is someone that's to That's what we love about doing it. And you don't love it saying, oh, hey, I get to do this. You love it because, oh, my God, this is what I have to use. It's a tool, you know. And 
I don't know what we would have done if we didn't have that to bounce our feelings off of. Because, like you said, no one knows. Right. I used to see people in wheelchairs. You're thinking, eh, I don't know what put them there. Or right. it's an older elderly person in a wheelchair. It's that hidden society that you, right. you know is there, but you don't know about it. Right. But there's so many things that causes paralysis. Spina bifida. Yeah. Um, could be sepsis involved, some type of damage to the spinal cord. I've heard of um, surgeries, and they end up getting a blood clot, and it's right at the base of the spinal right. cord. So that involves that. So there's just so many things that we had to learn about the paralysis game. And right. I say the game because you want to beat it, so you have to find a strategy on how to get through it. Right. Because it's it's hard to wake up every day and... You know, okay, I'm going to lean up, sit up on the bed, and go yeah. put on my clothes. It doesn't happen that way. Yeah. We need it. Usually for me, when I wake up, uh, my legs are stiff as boards. And then on those boards, I have to pull my knee up, stretch it out. You know, I'm stretching out the quad, the hamstring, my hips, my hip flexors. Right. And then once I get that, then they go straight again and pull them back up. Oh and then gosh. you have to kind of lean over. Some days are better than others. You lean over to the side of your bed. There's your wheelchair. Get over, hop your butt into the wheelchair, either go upstairs. Now, if you, now you had the whole dressing part, okay. I try and keep shorts next to the bed so I can put right. them on because you can't just stand or throw a leg in. You have to put them on there, get them on, get into the wheelchair. Yeah. And you go in to get a shower. Well, getting into the shower, you have to have uh, a roll-in shower or a bathtub that has a seat in it and a wand. And then you get in there, you pop your butt over onto the next seat, right. and then you wash yourself and you pop your back. So now you're getting in and out of your wheelchair how many times a day? You're not using your legs. Your legs are your arms and your shoulders. So your arms are very muscular. Like well, because they've been... you try and keep them that way. And you yeah. try not to injure your shoulders, but over time, I've been doing 12 years and my shoulders hurt every day. And then back in January this year, I injured my right shoulder. So I've lost a lot of strength because I wasn't working out. I wanted to make sure that the shoulder healed. And it's healed better to the point I have full use, but it has pain. Right. I know. They think, oh, it's over. Okay, you're done now. Yeah. You're just going to be... No, yeah. you still have ongoing pain. Sure. And then the other thing about paralysis, I'm what's called an incomplete injury. So my my spinal cord wasn't completely severed. So there is still signals being sent, you know, to try and do your legs, try and communicate, but mm-hmm. they don't. So the communication or lack thereof of the, the signals being sent, the signals from the legs don't go nowhere. They just keep bouncing back and forth on themselves. So I tell people, um, it's kind of like this. You've heard a phantom pain. People that lose a limb, they say, I can, feel my, I can feel my fingers. I can feel my toes. Yeah. Well, how? You don't have, because the nerve endings are still sending those signals. It right. doesn't stop because they're severed. That's interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah. But that phantom pain, it is a pain because it's an unreceived signal and it doesn't know how to classify it. Phantom. So it classifies it as pain. Yeah. So I'm always from the waist down in pain. And what I tell people is my brain has learned to deal with it, but it doesn't like it. When it happens the worst, I tell people, let's throw some fire ants on your legs and then let's throw the gasoline on top of them. Let's light the gasoline on fire and that's a normal day. Are you kidding me? Hmm, That's a normal day. A bad day is keep throwing gasoline on it, throw some more on it and keep that flame going a little bit harder. Oh, my gosh. That's how it feels. See, people don't see no. that. That's what it feels to me. Now, I've heard any number of paralysis people saying it's it's not as bad. It's easier for me to deal with this. It's so much different. But it's and every it day. is. It's, every it's day. constant. 
Now, with before we started, you saw the pain I had yes, in my side. I well, did. that's my level of injury. Belly button down. So on my left side, I can't feel to touch all the way around from my spine to my belly button in that spot. However, God has a weird sense of humor. Mm-hmm. I get a pain there that feels like a spasm inside, but I can't. The skin touch isn't felt, but this pain is physical pain inside. I feel like a uh, almost like your intestine wrenching itself. And I sit there and kind of push pressure into there to try and stop it. There's nothing they can do? We've tried an injection, right. topical creams, um, acupuncture, massage. I've tried everything, and nothing. nothing has stopped it. So they told me, just deal with it. <laughs> yeah, that's easy. <laughs> and I said, okay. Because... When it gets to the point where you can't deal with it, we'll, we'll kind of go into it again. Because they can't tell me what's wrong. So even my spinal cord doctors say, it's an at-level injury. I'm like, I know that, right. but why can't we stop it? And they're just like, well, we can't. So finally, just this year, it's getting to the point where I can't. Um, it's really causing me to, my days, to go downhill because the pain is so increased and so bad anymore that it's so sorry. it just happens. And I deal with it. I even tell when I've, I've spoken to people, I just did a speaking engagement um, in was it August? Beginning of August. That was at uh, the FBI division called CJIS. It's Criminal Justice Information Systems, where all of the police departments, we get all our information, and it's here in West Virginia. I spoke to a group of probably about 200 people when I was up on stage, and I said, first thing, if you see me doing this and put my head down and talking, I'm fine. Short of me falling out of the chair, I'm fine. And it is because that pain comes up whenever it wants. Usually after, like, we'll be sitting here and I'll go to make movement, it'll start. And I think mostly it is the fragments of bullets still left in the, in the path of the bullet that it, it took. So I have the mass of the bullet is off to the right side, encapsulated in muscle. But the fragments of the bullet hitting bone are still throughout the spinal You're column kidding. somewhere. Yeah. Also, you can't do an MRI because they will not do an MRI if they think there's any metal in the body. Oh, my god! So the only thing we do is a CT scan, which then when the CT does the scanning and it sees the metal, it kind of they call starbursts. So you can actually see the path the bullet took as it went through the spinal column. So I'm learning so much from you. And this, I did not realize this yeah. all went into it. Yeah, and that's that's what I had And this learned. is what you're living with every mm-hmm. day. That's what you learn. You also learn that... When you have a spinal cord injury, um, urination, defecation, all those things are controlled at the lowest point of your body, which is in the sacral regions. Right. I have to self-catheterize it all day, and you have a bowel program where you have to stimulate yourself to go to the bathroom. So that's other things people don't know. So yeah, able to eat? Oh, yeah. I eat everything. That's why I... Have a little bit too much weight around my waist. You're perfect. So, um, yeah, so these are things that you just have to learn. And you have to tell the people that are going through it, too, mm-hmm. because now it's like you know what to expect, and you yeah. want them, hey, look, you might have worst-case scenario, you mm-hmm. might not, but this is what I'm going through. Yeah. And sometimes they don't want to hear it, but you have to let them know that this yeah. it might not go away. And a lot of people, you know, it's not to meet gross people out, and right. people get, you know, affected by because you got to poop. Right. Listen, there's the book out there that says everybody poops. That's right. I just have to do it a different way now. Right. And it, it it's just what is. I know. You know, and I uh, I look at it as not being a problem because I'm six feet above ground. That's right, baby. You know, so, so it's the greatest so thing. Oh, you're, thank you very you've much. You've got a great spirit and great sense of humor. I try. You know, and you're... 
Oh gosh, I, I, Chris and your family mm-hmm. and your your fur babies are the best. Oh. And you know, yeah. I, well, I was talking about that documentary. So if mm-hmm. you want to, um, just let us know. We're going to wrap it up. Okay. What um, what exactly? If somebody out there is like, you know, I really would like to talk to Jimmy or, mm-hmm. you know, I, this has happened to my son or this happened to me or, you know, I'd really need some motivation because I'm really down mm-hmm. on myself. How would they get a hold of you? Just like by all the social media. I'm on Instagram as Officer Jim Kuzak. Uh, I have a website. It's Officer oh, yeah. Jim Kuzak. Officer spelled out. O-F-F-I-C-E-R. Mm-hmm. Jim Kuzak, my name. Uh, I can be reached through the website. I can be found on Facebook. My profile is open, so they can leave me a message there, a messenger, uh, and those start start those ways. And then we get to personally meeting or phone calls or whatever we do with that. Okay. Um, I've just had the fortunate ability to get across to people, and uh, I like to keep doing it. Well, the way you speak, it's you know, it's you're speaking like not at them. Mm-hmm. You're their friend. Like I feel like you know we've known each other for yeah. a long time, and you know, and I just. You know, you don't know what somebody goes through. And then I mm-hmm. feel like an awful friend because I was never there to say, call you up no. or send your cards. Hey, how's everything going? So then I get that, you know, that mentalness sure. of all of us is like the guilt of not being that type of person you want to be. You think about it, but then you don't act on it. You know? Yeah, but I, th- I think a large portion is um, you have three beautiful kids. You do everything you can to give them the best life. What does that do? Well, you got to make sacrifices. Somewhere along the line, you sacrifices yourself. So does Mike. But you do that to instill in those kids, look what we're able to give to you because of the sacrifices your mom and I make. It's not big sometimes. Sometimes it's huge. But the kids, they'll appreciate it at some point. They may not when they're young, screaming and running around the house, but they do, you know, and they they feel that. They may not acknowledge it right away, but get into their 30s, and they start looking at mom and dad and everything they do for them. Hopefully when the grandkids come around. They they start learning what you've been through or what, oh, wow, okay, I didn't realize it was going to be like this. And we don't want them to realize that. We don't want them to sit there and be a 12-year-old wondering why, you know, mom's stressed out or dad's stressed out. They don't know know, what your job is so much or why that's difficult. So I'm so happy that you were so open and honest about what you've been through and because you're going to help somebody Jimmy I hope you are you are I mean you're what you've been through and what you're going through now and you're able to talk to people and able to talk (laughs) about it like that to me is I'm not going to say it (laughs) okay courage okay I'll accept courage heroes rough just because I don't know yeah I survived I guess it was a heroic action see I think people from the outside looking in Mm -hmm. honey you were there at you were risking your life, no matter where you go, no matter what you're doing. We'll add, you one, more th- we'll add one more thing to this. Yes. And what I say is why I was put in the place to help people. Who I helped that day was a husband, wife, and two kids. They did a home invasion there. Unfortunately, the process was the, the male of that home was unfortunately a drug dealer. It doesn't have anything upon his kids, you know, his wife and kids. But at the time, the bad guys had... Were they there collect getting money or something? They had beaten the dad, and they were wanting the money and drugs that he may have in the house, so they then put the gun in one of the kids' mouths and said, we're going to kill your child. And then we're in the process of attempting to rape the mother when we arrived. Oh, my God. So 
I served a purpose that day. We got there quickly and we stopped further actions of injuring anybody else. So today, 12 years removed, there's a woman who wasn't raped and there's two children that are alive and hopefully a guy that recovered regardless of what his past is or what he did. Oh, Jimmy, mm-hmm. when you when you put that in perspective and you talk about that, because I didn't, I thought there was nobody home. Nope, there was people there, and that's why I said sometimes we take the I, I I pare down the story to get it out of the way. You know, yeah. not that it wasn't important, but sometimes those important th- pieces get left out. Right. There was nobody that won that day. Right. Nobody won. The bad guys didn't win. I didn't win. The, I say I won. I lived. Right. They didn't do anything to me. I lived. That's right. You know, and, uh, you know, all of us have now gone in a different way as a result of that night, as a result of two people's actions. Right. And, you know, and that's to me, like, I feel like you only got one life to live in this world and you got to make the most of it. And if you can help people or you can be there for people. And I'm just glad I'm friends with you. I'm glad you are too. (laughs) So good to see you again. So good to see you too. So we're going to wrap it up. This was Spill With Me, Jenny D. And my great friend, Jimmy Kuzak. He is the best. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on Spill With Me, Jenny D. Take care. Bye. Bye. Come spill with me.